0: You're listening to The Magnet Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome. You are listening to The Magnet Theatre Podcast. I'm Lewis Kornfeld, and this afternoon I am speaking with our guest, Jeffrey Sweet, Jeff is the author of many, many plays. Uh, among them, I will read some of the titles. We have Flyovers, The Value of Names, and Bluff. He's also the author of The Dramatist's Toolkit and Solving Your Script, yep. which happened to be two of my favorite books on playwriting. And uh, the original chronicler of both The Compass and Second City with Something Wonderful Right Away. Jeffrey Sweet, thank you so much for talking it's today. It's a to be here. Yeah. So we were, before we started the interview, talking about the relationship between the Cossacks and the satirical boom in Uh, uh, in America in the 1950s. Please share your thoughts on that.
0: Well, um, if you take a look at the people who uh, uh, participated in the satiric boom that happened in the mid-50s, the parents and the grandparents of these people mostly were uh, Jews who had fled the Cossacks. Um, I mean, my own grandmother fled the Cossacks. Uh, She was was living in a little town uh, called Poltava. And uh, word came that the Cossacks were coming, and uh, the family said, what are we going to do? And the maid, who was not uh, Jewish, said, go down in the basement. Let me see what I can do. And they went down to the basement. This is family legend, hmm. you know. And the Cossacks came into town. Where are the Jews? And the maid said, Jews? I wouldn't allow any filthy fucking Jews in my house. And they believed her, and they went on. And my grandmother wasn't killed, and I am here today. Um, similarly, um um Viola Spolin's father was a guy named Konstantin Belichikovsky. And Connie came to uh, 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 Ellis Island, uh, which was the, you know, endpoint point for immigrants. And uh, the guy at Ellis Island says, uh, What's your name? He says, Konstantin Belichikovsky. He says, Well, that's a mouthful. You're in America. You should come up with something snappier than that. And uh, Connie, who was uh, multilingual, had was carrying a collection of... Uh, uh, essays by John Stuart Mill. Hmm. He says, all right. He says, make it the mill. And so that's the name they gave him, Make Mill. Hmm. And uh, in fact, his great-grandson is named Make Keen. He's a friend of mine on Facebook. But that fine old American name, Make, which came out of <laughs> this Ellis <laughs> Island mistake. It's a story I got care of Janet Coleman. I must credit Janet. Um, but uh, if you take a look at what happened, uh, the American Jewish experience, you know, people came here, You know, faced a certain amount of prejudice. They didn't face anything like what they had seen in Russia, but there were certain, you know, they could, there were country clubs they couldn't join. Although all those people were dancing to music by Russian Jews because they were dancing to Broadway musical songs, and all those were written by the children and grandchildren of Russian Jews. And, uh, you know, there were were various parts of society that they weren't, were precluded from, but still, you know, Jewish Americans flourished. And uh, after World War II and after Hitler was defeated, um, they sort of heaved a sigh of relief. And then all of a sudden, the House and american Activities Committee got started. And who were they going after? Mostly Jews. Um, you know, go back to the transcripts, and you see these apes uh, behind the committee table saying, Well, you call yourself Holiday, but your real name is what? Judy Tuvum? Hmm. So that's Judy Holiday. Her real name was Tovim, and they were, you know, trying to suggest that because she had a Jewish background that she was somehow an american And Joe Pap was originally Joe Paparowski and he was blacklisted. A lot of these people were blacklisted or graylisted, uh, and uh, as I say, if you go back, you don't have to scratch too hard to find a lot of anti-Semitism. So my theory is that uh, a lot of people were the children and grandchildren of people who had gotten away from the Cossacks, looked at... Uh, looked at uh, Carl Muntz and Richard Nixon and Joe McCarthy and said, well, they don't have sabers and they aren't riding horses and they've learned how to tie Windsor knots, but they're still Cossacks. Mm -hmm. And uh, what can they do to us? Let's mock them. And if you take a look, right about that time is when there was this huge explosion of satiric comedy of challenging uh, uh, the bastards in power. Hmm. And uh, that uh, not only fueled uh, the rise of... Uh, satire through improvisation. It fueled, uh, you know, literature as Philip Roth and Jules Pfeiffer and uh, a lot of other people. But I—that's my theory—is that it came out of uh, American Jews saying uh, it's not going to happen in this country without us uh, putting up a fight. And the fight was uh, done in on comedy terms.
1: There now, I might be mistaken about this. I was reading. Um, uh, Dave von Rank's autobiography, The Mayor McDougal Street, recently, and he was mm. talking about the number of Jews in the folk music scene yeah. in the early nineteen fifties. Yeah, Bob Dylan's yeah. Yeah. and and one theory that he presented was that among the different ethnic groups that immigrated to the country, mm. the Jews were particularly anxious to assimilate and particularly anxious to Adopt the new identity as kind of true blue Americans. Oh, well,
0: you saw that as the heads of studios out in LA. These guys who spoke with thick accents uh, and rarely had Jewish characters in their films except uh, uh, the occasional guy behind the deli counter. What were they doing? They were cranking out the image of what the all American family looked like Andy Hardy. Yeah. You know, and that continued on to television. I remember reading some right-wing ape saying, why can't we have good old-fashioned American comedy like the Andy Griffith Show, uh, ignoring the fact that all of Andy Griffith's writers were Jews. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's a, a long history of, uh, of, of, of Jews uh, excluded from a society that they then idealized and popularized. Yeah, You know, that's one of the things that was significant, in fact, about Fiddler on the Roof. Was, uh, that was when uh, Jews said... Uh, we're going to tell a story about our own uh, family, our own people, our own parents and grandparents. We're not going to do, phrase it in metaphor, because an awful lot of that stuff dealt with Jewish themes of exclusion. But uh, somehow, it, it, it was never about Jews, it was about other people. Yeah. So finally, with, uh, with Fiddler on the Roof, which this is one of the things that's important about the show, aside from the fact that it's a sensational show but it's um uh, written by uh, and was directed by people whose parents had that experience and uh they stopped dealing in code they said this is what our parents and grandparents went through yeah
1: and at, at that point I, I mean so much so much of entertainment in the country had been so steeped in a Jewish sensibility. Am I right about that? Oh
0: yeah. I mean, I, I would I would argue that uh, Billy Wilder was the most influential um, um, writer uh, and one of the most influential directors uh, in Hollywood. And yeah. Certainly, his experience as an ex- as a, a, an expatriate Jew from uh, from Austria. Yeah. Uh, you know. You, but again, you take a look and you see. Uh, you have to look very hard to find any Jews. In Billy Wilder's movies. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it's true. I, I, I remember I read um, Pauline Kael's review of the movie Fiddler on the Roof. And one of the things she said in that review is that the the show is as much a, a celebration of show business and a celebration of what the Jewish sensibility brought to entertainment in America. Yeah. And it's interesting that a generation or two would be so steeped in 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 kind of a Broadway sensibility and it takes that much time for it to rise to the surface and kind of acknowledge the identity that well, it originated. There, there
0: had been a little bubblings of it, you know, remember the first uh, talking picture was a Jewish theme picture yeah. or, or, or the most famous early one, which is uh, the jazz singers mm-hmm. about, you know, Al, uh, Al Jolson as being the cantor's son and uh, not wanting to uh, sing in synagogues, but wanting to sing on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there'd been some of that. Um, but yeah, you know, again, you think of uh, uh, Betty Comden and Adolph Green, who wrote uh, "Singing in the Rain," and it's always fair weather and a lot of uh, Broadway musicals. And you have to look pretty bloody hard to find anybody who's overtly uh, who's overtly Jewish. Yeah, um, and I, I think it's important that you take a look at uh, at the history of improv, and you see that most of the founding uh, uh, parents. Uh, come from that background, and not Del Close. Del Close was his, you know, own weird wasp sensibility, mm-hmm. and uh, you know, managed to isolate himself without having to be uh, <laughs> a part of an ethnic group that was discriminated against. <laughs> he just was strange, uh, but uh, most of the other people, uh, and David Shepard was yeah. also wasp. But uh, David and um, and uh, and Dell were the two uh, were the two uh, sort of wasps in, uh, involved in this, who certainly were very important. Yeah. But part of what was funny about David Shepard is this man helped to uh, kick off a movement of great comedy and humor. And the man's got no sense of humor. Mm-hmm. He's got a sense of irony. I say this, uh, there's a new documentary out about the compass. And I say that in that film, but that was the the great joke with David was that in fact, I, 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 I almost never have seen him laugh or tell a joke.
1: Mm-hmm. I, my impression is that he seems really irritated at, at improv being used for comedy.
0: Oh, yes, yes. Now, his his idea of uh, improv... Uh, well, you know, he wasn't interested in improv per se, initially. What he was interested in was putting on theater that would, uh, uh, for normal, everyday people who would recognize uh, uh, their social situation, you know, how oppressed they were mm-hmm. by various institutions, and would rise up and overthrow... He was a Marxist. Mm-hmm. And... Um, uh, you know that was the idea was that theater was supposed to enlighten uh, and uh, and motivate uh, people to challenge the institutions. So you know, uh, and that's what happened in the sixties. And uh, you have to say that uh, comedy certainly had a part of what happened in the sixties. Mm-hmm. You know, particularly when you take a look at um, what the work that the committee did in San Francisco, in the heart of. Um, uh, all the political ferment of the 60s, you know, went straight from the streets to the stage. Uh, The committee was essentially the folk theater of uh, the counterculture. Uh, More so in in many ways than Second City was, really. You know, the Second City people, a lot of graduate students or people who had spent years at the University of Chicago and were very much in their head and were very smart and were very funny. Uh, The committee really brought the experience to the street onto the stage in a way that Second City didn't.
1: And the the committee was deliberate in being more provocative. I oh, yeah. Yeah. It, they were looking not, I mean, my, uh, my understanding of it from the little I've managed to find, there's surprisingly little to find about the committee. They're, Tony Hendra writes a couple of chapters in his book about them. Well,
0: of course, uh, there's a bit of a, in, in, in my book, I talk about Alan Meyerson, who was sure. director at Second City and wanted to do more political stuff and P- Sills basically said, if you want to do that stuff, start your own theater. Yeah. And so Myerson went to San Francisco and started uh, the the committee there's actually a fair amount uh, there are three records they're not easy to get but there are three records they're all really good mm-hmm. is that the wide world of war it was the third one uh-huh. you know which has got cleanup which is one of the greatest sketches sure, in with, the history and it's Del Close yeah. and uh, and uh, Larry
1: Hankin and that's one you can find on YouTube somebody was kind enough to post that
0: yeah and then there's the film called A Session with the Committee that was shot in 1968 which is sort of a best of the first three or four shows and mm-hmm. that's kind of a staggering record of what was going on and if you go picking around you'll find clips from you know the Smothers Brothers show mm-hmm. and the committee didn't last that long it lasted about 10 years yeah. you know they were primarily in San Francisco and then the, uh, the center of gravity kind of moved to Los Angeles as these people got into uh, TV and I remember seeing them in Los Angeles, and then they toured sometimes, and I remember seeing them uh, down uh, uh, in the village a a couple of times around the time of Watergate doing uh, uh, Nixon sketches.
1: Were they as exciting to see in person as as they are in my imagination? Because they have a there's a real mystique to the committee. Yeah,
0: means. they were they were they were genuinely radical and politically engaged. The second city was more alienated than politically engaged. And mm-hmm. The committee, uh, at least in those uh, in the, its origins, was more, was more radical.
1: Second city was more of a, a kind of struggle with middle class values, or or the would that be fair to say, well, like a middle class yeah, I mean, sensibility uh, in in an alienated society.
0: Yeah, and. And revolting against uh, their parents and you know the materialism of their parents. I mean, that's it's on some level you might say that uh, the the Graduate would be a, a second city movie because mm-hmm. it's uh, you know uh, a fuck you to your parents' values and mm-hmm. you know plastics and all that sort of thing. Even though it was shot out in California and even though there, I don't know if there are any second city people in uh, uh, the Graduate. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. I mean, Mike Nichols directed it. Buck Henry came from the premise, which was a New York, uh, improv group. Mm-hmm. But um, the committee; uh, these people were not only uh, they were closer to the street, and they and they shared their kitchen facilities with the diggers who distributed free food to uh, to to the homeless and the shiftless in <laughs> in San Francisco. Mm. So uh, they were much closer to the action politically of what was going on. Yeah. Um, that said, Second City did a, 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 ter- a tremendous amount of terrific satiric work. But there's a kind of um, the committee started off with shirts and ties, and even in the 1968 film, a session with the committee, they've got, you know, ties and... and, and not shirts, uh, uh, jackets and ties. Mm-hmm. And they and they looked like, you know, nice graduate student types. And then within a year, they were on stage in, you know, tie-dyed stuff, and the, the culture had changed, uh, and they changed with it. And they were part of changing the culture.
1: They... Um, my. Understanding is that they were as concerned with um, provoking a dialogue with an audience and kind of and being a little bit confrontational with people. Is it is it a fair assessment to suggest that they were more concerned with changing the society around them than Second City was?
0: I guess, except. You- you know, this makes them sound like that they were as as, as if they were crusaders or, or something. They yeah. were just uh, it, 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 it was a it was a great way to meet girls to be part of the revolution. Yeah, if the revolution had actually come, I think they would have gone. Wait a second, where do I get my fast food coffee if yeah. the revolution's coming? You know, uh, I, I lived through you know I was a kid in, in, in as the sixties were kicking in, and, and an awful lot of uh, the rhetoric was mindlessly repeated. There were some people who were genuine thinkers and did the reading and really followed uh, the logic. There were some people who, oh, this is a way of saying fuck you to our parents and fuck you to the society and uh, coming up with a justification, uh, an intellectual justification not to be drafted. Yeah. But an awful lot of it came out of, uh, out of self-interest. Some of it came out of idealism. You know, certainly to be against the war was a good thing and to be in favor of civil rights was a good thing. It took them a long time to get around to uh, paying any attention to women's rights or gay rights. Mm-hmm but um there's uh uh you know they were they were they were an awful lot of people lent their bodies to uh, aspects of the movement without having thought their way through the uh done the hard thinking about the politics of the time they just mm-hmm. knew what they were against and what they were against was such you know palpable evil mm-hmm. how, how could you not be against richard nixon mm-hmm. you know although even now we're discovering ironies. You know what Nixon's grand plan for his second uh, term was that we managed to uh, uh, fuck ourselves out of by putting uh, by, by, by kept pushing, pursuing him through Watergate? Mm. Universal health care. Mm-hmm. What he wanted, in fact, was more liberal than what we've ended up with Obamacare. Mm-hmm. So we had the, the great satisfaction of driving this paranoid lunatic out of, out of office But if the paranoid lunatic had stayed in office, we probably would have gotten a a universal health care and a better system
1: (laughs) (laughs) many years earlier. (laughs) It's an interesting thing doing comedy and, and, and a comedy that comes from a tradition that's so steeped in satire because... Um looking back yeah. from our current perspective, Nixon doesn't seem quite so bad, quite so the face of evil that he was oh, to he that was generation. Oh, he was horrible. We're so I'm, used to— I mean, you to- know, he
0: bombed Cambodia. I mean, how many thousands of people do you have to kill? And well, how, sure. How many people have to come back in body bags in support of a, of a terrible idea? You know, we lost Vietnam. What happened? Yeah. Nothing. Yeah. Except that a lot of people went over in a a terrible cause. They said it was going to be, you know, the fall of Southeast Asia. People, Americans are going to Vietnam, North Vietnam as tourists and they're welcomed by the North Vietnamese who've, you know, chosen to forget or forgive, you know, hideous things that were done. But, you know, the idea that we were over there to save democracy and, and we lost and not much happened. Yeah. So the whole thing
1: was spurious. The whole thing was bullshit, and a lot of people said that. Well, no doubt. But it sort of it. It seems like we've acclimated ourselves to that becoming the main point of view of the world these days. It. It. We're so used to war crimes as the kind of uh, the way things go. We're well, doing a comedy show, right? We are. Oh, okay. Just, we just are. checking. <laughs> well, well, because I mean, it, it. It also like it. Brings me to a point about. Satire in a climate where the world is already so satirical-looking anyway, where it's difficult to top the atrocities of what the people in charge are really doing with mm. your comedy. When you,
0: well, what you can do is you can bre- you can attack the breakdown of, of the logic that is used to support this crap. Yeah, and that's what's been uh, uh, tremendously useful about uh, uh, John Stewart and, uh, and 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 Stephen Colbert because mm-hmm. uh, they both dealt with the breakdown of logic. Colbert doing it in that odd way of being of playing a character who was the fierce champion of illogic. Interesting thing about the show: it was a Stewart show. He was the same guy who was trying to withstand assaults by a bunch of lunatics, and Colbert was the lunatic whom everybody who came onto the show tried to drag to sanity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but but both of them dealt with uh, the misuse of, of logic and with uh, with uh, the justification of horrible things with um, um, uh, arguments that would not withstand recent examinations very similar to what uh, Jules Pfeiffer did in a lot of, uh, uh, particularly a lot of his more political cartoons mm-hmm. in which um, you'd follow, um, um, you know, a, ch- a chain of logic by a character and, and it, it, it would end up eating its own tail. You'd have a, a Black Panther saying, you know, if you aren't part of the solution, you're part of the problem. The next panel, if you aren't right, the right part of the solution, you're part of the problem. And each step along the way Uh, goes very logically to the statement, if you're part of the solution, you're part of the
1: problem. (laughs)
0: So, you know, it was Pfeiffer saying these, you know, uh, people are will misuse logic or pervert logic or commit logical fallacies that nobody catches because of the passions of the moment. Mm -hmm. You know, the whole adventure in Iraq was... uh, um, you know, based on a total logical disconnect. Mm-hmm. You know, nine eleven. Well, nine eleven had nothing to do with Iraq, and a lot of people knew it at the time. And mm-hmm. yet, um, uh, um, basically, Bush and company said, you know, the guys who knocked down the towers were, you know, foreigners who had towels around their heads. Let's go attack some foreigners with towels around their head. Yeah, let's go do it. But mm-hmm. wait a second, they, they they weren't the the same people. Are they foreigners, mm-hmm. yeah, do they have towels around their head? yeah, good enough for me mm-hmm. kill you know, and that was so that's that you know that's susceptible to being analyzed as a breakdown of logic, and
1: uh, you find you know grim humor in that, yeah so um what's well, interesting because logic in in mobs of people is will always be superseded by emotion and, oh yeah and you're you're dictated by 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 the scope of your emotion and,
0: and, and Americans love to believe that sincerity and, yes. and, 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 blood pumping through your heart, uh, um, uh, Trump's, uh, uh rational uh, analysis. Yeah. Y- you need a mixture. You, yeah. You, 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 ha- you, ha- you have to have both, but we're, we also have a society which is deeply suspicious of, uh, of education and mm-hmm. culture. um, you know, it's some of the Republican legislatures are even saying, you, you know, you can't. They don't want people studying critical thinking. They mm-hmm. don't want people doing advanced placement history. They, you know, they, they, as in Florida, they've they they banned the the terms global warming from uh, from official state documents. Mm-hmm. Things like this. It's uh, and it, it's extended to popular culture. If you take a look at all of the um, not all, of it, but an enormous number of the uh, the action movies. You know, where uh, uh, Americans like Bruce Willis are going up against uh, the villains, the villains are almost always played by classical actors. Mm-hmm. Who can quote Shakespeare? Well, fuck them. Why the can you know, qu- quoting Shakespeare? Who are these supercilious bastards who mm-hmm. are you know shoving the classics down our throat? You know Jeremy Irons, kill him. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know Alan Rickman, eviscerate him. Mm-hmm. You know it's it's always these people. You know uh, uh, it, it, this this resentment of uh, of education and, uh, and and intellectuals just has been. Uh, 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 system. Any time somebody quotes Shakespeare or you know uh, uh, any of the classics in, in a movie, you know they're going to they're going to be killed by the uh, mm-hmm. by the hero.
1: Well, it's interesting that, that sort of goes back to the blacklist a little bit and, and the McCarthy era where they're hunting down people who have changed their names to to reveal that you're oh a and and, 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 and intellectuals. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, people, you represent the European. Scourge or, or the intellectual scourge, or
0: if you were taught classes in, uh, you know, exploring Marxist theory, this must mean that you're a Marxist, so we'll throw you out. Mm-hmm. Reminds me, there's a wonderful uh, chunk in uh, one of the Henry the Sixes. I think it's Henry Six Part Two, mm-hmm. uh, uh, in which there's a guy named uh, Jack Cade who's the leader of this know nothing violent rebellion uh, uh, against uh, royalty and uh, Cade's rebellion. And Cade at one point has a man put to death because he speaks French, because he trusts nobody who speaks the tongue of his enemy. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, how many times have we seen people going after after people because they, the equivalent of speaking French? Mm-hmm. Oh, you understand uh, Marxist theory, so you must be evil. You know, let's get them fired, let's blacklist them. So uh, an awful lot of that is, you know, the hatred and fear of uh, exploring... Uh, as a... There's a, a funny early sketch from Second City, in which I think Eisenhower is portrayed as saying, "You know, modern thought says that we must uh, learn to understand people whose uh, philosophies uh, are different than ours, and only in this way can we hope to destroy them." <laughs> so, you know, there's a, there's an awful awful lot of that, yeah. uh, and uh, still, um, th- this idea that we might actually understand a culture before we invade or destroy it. Mm Kind of useful idea. Maybe, you know, an awful lot of the Iraq adventure was the idea of imposing our view uh, that that we assumed that they had to think the way we did. And as soon as we come in, we'd be greeted as liberators and they'd want to set up, uh, you know, free elections and the the women would be enfranchised and they wouldn't keep killing gay people. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, that didn't turn out so well.
1: But doesn't that go back to to Andy Hardy, in a way, and this proliferation of of this kind of American dream and this American ideal that that never really existed. Yeah, it, well, and it's what they used to say about
0: Reagan. It was that he lived in an America that he had played in in the movies, but yeah. it didn't have anything to do with real life. And he would sometimes tell anecdotes to illustrate policies, and it would turn out that they were scenes from movies that he'd been in, and had no basis in reality whatsoever. Yeah uh Pfeiffer did a series of uh, cartoons about Reagan living in movie America mm-hmm. and uh, but um, uh this this part of us that responds to that we go to Disney Disneyland and we see this replica of a small town that none of us ever lived in but we're still n- nostalgic for mm-hmm you know it's it's a very it's a very funny thing how you can be nostalgic for something that never existed yeah but a, a lot of this came out of what we were talking about before which is most of the studios were headed by eastern european jews who wanted desperately to fit into the country mm-hmm. and to be thought of as american and to contribute to the country and to not be you know they were afraid people would come after them if they didn't so they suppressed as much of the Jewishness in, in their work as possible and you know created this movie image of, a, of America as a um, uh, as a way of uh, assimilating and, 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 and covering themselves and protecting themselves and they instantly jumped in and became part of the blacklist mm-hmm. most of the studios participated in that you couldn't have had a blacklist without the cooperation of the studios mm-hmm. so it was Jews persecuting other Jews
1: mm-hmm. it it there's something kind of interesting and double-edged about and this. Is obviously too much of a generalization to make, but I'll make it anyway. It, it this thing in, in that's a part of American culture where we we f- create a fantasy about who we are and who we're meant to be and what our role on the global scale is and what our role on the historical scale is, and it it is at one and the same time, something that is constantly hopeful and constantly allows us to feel like we have the ability to reinvent ourselves Mm -hmm. and the ability to design a better future for ourselves Mm -hmm. and and the ability to design a more perfectly functioning society that's more equal and more fair and more free. Mm -hmm. And then the flip side to that is you're nostalgic for something that never occurred. Um, And nostalgia, if you run very deeply into it, There's a tremendous amount of hostility and defensiveness uh, uh, lurking right under the surface of nostalgia. A lot of, a lot of brutality when you become too sentimental. Well, people
0: who were sentimental about the fifties were sentimental about a time when people were, you know, blacks were still being lynched and women uh, were kept from, uh, kept from office and kept from power, and when uh, anybody who. Uh, who had sex outside of marriage, was uh, uh, persecuted or, Mm -hmm.
1: you know, thought to be, you know, evil and low class. Mm -hmm. Which, and that's something that's completely whitewashed in the fantasy of of the 50s. You just don't consider the people who um, were treated very, very badly. That's not part of your picture. Yeah,
0: no, it's it's the fantasies of, you know, comfortable white males who wish they could go back to being comfortable white males. Yeah. so yeah, that's certainly part of it. Um this is, we are we are talking about comedy. Here. We are. <laughs> we <laughs> okay, are okay. every now and then I just want you know, this this this
1: touchstone. Well, because uh, I mean this know. also goes to like an interesting point too, because it it to me it takes me back to um this idea of assimilating to the American culture, mm-hmm. which the Jews seem to be particularly um Open to, or, or particularly, it, it seems culturally like Jews wanted to to become American very quickly. Well,
0: yeah, but, you know they had fled horrible places, sure. and they wanted to find some place that they would be comfortable and uh, and and not not be tossed out. But there was also the thing of you mustn't be too Jewish in public, right? An awful lot of that, and don't stand out, don't get noticed, because if right. you stand and get noticed, people will pick on you. And there's a, a justification for that. My my mother, growing up in, uh, in Pittsburgh, uh, used to uh, be chased by neighborhood kids who would throw stones at her and call her "dirty Jew." Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not that long ago, sure. Uh, and you know, we're, we have a, a lot of anti-Semitism flaring up around, around the world now. Mm-hmm. So,
1: uh, but it's yeah. interesting to make because. Viola Spolin's work, when she was working through Hull House, and, yeah. and was very much, if I'm reading it correctly, about helping kids to assimilate to their environment and helping kids from different cultural backgrounds to find a, a, a point well, of common it was ground. the
0: ideal of the melting pot that everybody, can you know, you can value your, all of your backgrounds, but the idea is to communicate across uh, cultural barriers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and assume that there were certain. Things that united all people in terms of the desire to play and the desire to create, you know, shared narratives and shared realities
1: mm-hmm. and so forth. And that certainly was that certainly was was part of that. So there is this really interesting um, kind of dual impulse right at the birth of improv in America mm. of both finding that place of shared play and mm. and common ground, and but that fed very directly into. A mocking sensibility that is constantly fighting back against the Cossack mentality. Well,
0: let's go back to the original cast of Second City and who was uh, who was in it and who were the, quote, straight people in the show, although everybody was gifted, but Andrew Duncan, who's not Jewish, and Mina mm-hmm. Kolb, who was a good Catholic lady. And they both sort of represented, uh, uh, in scene after scene, they represented uh, aspects of reality that the other people were uh, revolting against. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not that there was, you know, banging heads or anything, but uh, Andrew represented, uh, and and it's one of the reasons that uh, when Andrew took a vacation, the show fell apart. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, everybody thought, oh, Severn's going on vacation, what are we going to do? The show survived. Uh, Arkin's going on vacation, the show survived. Even Barbara Harris, the show survived. But Andrew was the glue because he provided the reality against which everybody was... Revolting or challenging, he Mm -hmm. was. He was, you know, the the, the straight view of America. I mean, which is funny because Andrew himself is a very funny guy and Mm -hmm. he's
1: he's got a slightly demented view of the world. It's it's kind of hard to be a great straight man if you don't have a slightly demented view of the world, right? Yeah,
0: and 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 great straight men know how to uh, how to establish a reality that you can trampoline off of. Mm -hmm. You know, I'd say Paul Dooley, who's not Jewish, although he's married to Winnie Holtzman who is. Mm is very much, uh, you know, was one of the great straight men. It's interesting that Dooley and uh, Andrew Duncan ended up uh, forming a a, a comedy team that created uh, commercials together, these Mm -hmm. two waspy guys, you know. But Dooley married uh, uh, a woman who came out of an improv background named Winnie Holtzman, and then Winnie goes on to write the book to a musical called Wicked, which is... Uh, nothing if, uh, if, 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 if not a coded version of uh, the Jewish experience of mm-hmm. being considered to be the other. Mm-hmm. So, um, anyway. God, we're laughing here. You're just cracking up endlessly. <laughs> <Wow>. <laughs> but, I, but, but but that's part of what was interesting to me. You know, I do a solo show called You Only Shoot the Ones You Love, mm-hmm. which is about my dealings with these people, both when, as I was putting together uh, my, my book about Second City and uh, this movement called uh, uh, Something Wonderful Right Away, and my ties to these people, which persisted, you know, ever since. Mm-hmm. Uh you know, it's how I how I met uh, uh, Paul Sills and uh, Sheldon Patinkin and Del Close and and Mike Nichols and Barbara Harris and uh, Joan Rivers and all, and all these people. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, last year was a terrible year. We lost so many of these people. We lost uh, Joan and Sheldon. God, Mike Nichols, uh, who uh, you know was a pretty important part of my life and was you know supportive and friendly and. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we were in pretty constant contact. The last time I saw him was in August. He came to see a play I wrote about William Kunstler and, was, you know, flipped over it and was, you know, we climbed two flights of stairs to this garret with 50 folding chairs in it. And uh, and he came with the guy who wrote the lyrics to Fiddler on the Roof. Mm-hmm. So let's just keep this all <laughs> uh, together there. But, um, but Nichols, Joan Rivers, Dick Shaw... Mm-hmm. Uh, Ted Flicker, mm-hmm. Harold Ramis. Oh, I didn't know about Ted Flicker. Ted Flicker died last year, mm. yeah. And um, in the Times, nobody seemed to pay any attention to uh, what he had done with the premise here,
1: mm-hmm.
0: uh, and that he had uh, created the first... Uh, interracial uh, improv troupe, The mm-hmm. Living Premise. Do you know about that group? Mm-hmm. I do, yeah. Yeah, well, uh, he had a pretty good eye. I mean, the the, the the black performers in that were Al Freeman Jr., Diana Sands, and Godfrey Cambridge, mm-hmm. who all ended up becoming stars and, you know, kind of extraordinary performers. But Flickr was the one who said, if we're doing uh, satire and we're doing comedy about what's going on today, big part of what's going on today is the black experience. Nobody's doing this. Okay, let's get a bunch of people together and let's do this. Mm-hmm. And so he helped launch Godfrey Cambridge's uh, career. And then when Flickr made a movie called The President's Analyst, have you ever seen that film? No. you got to see that film. Yeah. It comes straight out of the sensibility and the co-stars in it are Godfrey Cambridge and Severin Garden as mm-hmm. spies.
1: That's
0: mm-hmm. a very funny, very paranoid movie. But it's very much uh, an extension of, um, of uh, the improvisational satiric uh, impulse. And a film way ahead of its time, yeah, it's about a, a shrink played by James Coburn, who becomes the uh, analyst for the president and because he's uh, privy to a lot of the president's private thoughts, a bunch of spies from around the world and different powers decide they're going to try to grab Coburn and to find out what the you know the the, the president's secrets are. He's being chased by you know. Members of the KGB and uh, and and uh, Chinese communists and this and that and the other and everybody's trying to grab him and it turns out that the most vicious group that is trying to grab him is uh, the phone company. Mm-hmm. This is back in the days when there was one phone company and uh, and at the end, which is traditionally in the Bond movies when there's the assault on the on the villain's fortress, uh, everybody gangs up and uh, there's an assault on TPC, which stands for the phone company. Mm-hmm. It's a very funny, very weird movie. It's interesting, I, but yeah, is it the, the theory was that the one thing that everybody in the world is united in hatred against is the phone company. That's funny. <laughs> it's, it's a terrific movie, but it's a very, but it's and a prophetic one in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's uh, it's as I say, it's Godfrey Cambridge and Severn Darden. It's probably the best part Severn ha- had in movies. Mm.
1: So to anyone listening who doesn't know Ted Flicker too, Ted Flicker and Elaine May are credited with coming up with the three basic tentpole rules of improv that are at the core of every long form theater's curriculum. Yeah. The kitchen conversations in St. Louis. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, uh, Those rules being don't deny each other's reality, uh, take the active choice and the actor's role is to justify choices. Yeah. Um, So he's a pretty important guy for all of us very directly and someone who I think a lot of improvisers don't know. He also, and this is something I want to get to in a little bit. We're sort of jumping around all over the place, but that's okay. Um, he also organized the St. Louis Compass, which is where Dale Close first began improvising along with uh, uh, Nancy Ponder and Joe Henderson and Ted Flicker himself. Yeah. And kind of came up and with... Nichols and Nicholson
0: May came down for a while. Yeah,
1: and Severn Darden went out there too, didn't he? Yeah. Um, yeah. Kind of invented a review format in St. Louis that could play to that audience.
0: Yeah. I mean, there, there, was, there, there was a hip... Uh, uh, a hip crowd there. Uh, the building has since been torn down mm-hmm. because I went and looked for it, and I found this plaque in the cement. Yeah, but uh, it was the Crystal Palace was the name of the uh, the nightclub. Yeah, and it was uh, uh, Fran and Jay Landisman uh, ran it, and uh, their nephew is Rocco Landisman, who ended up being uh, the head of the National Endowment for the Arts. Mm. I, I went down to D.C. a few years ago to be on a panel for uh, for the NEA and. Got a note that uh, Rocco wanted me to come up and talk to him, and I said, "Oh, okay." And he said, "I've just been reading finally your book, something wonderful right away, and I just wanted to tell you thank you because it it brought back to me my childhood, being in uh, the Crystal Palace, and Mm -hmm. you know, being a kid with Nichols and May and all these other people around, and you you know, you summoned up uh, the childhood that I had lost." I said, "Oh." Cool. <laughs> that's that's interesting. Yeah. It's
1: got to be a nice thing to hear, though. Yeah. That there's no way you could deliberately do that or control that No, of. there's a lot of
0: stuff I didn't deliberately do. You yeah. know, here's here's the funny thing that happened as a result of that book, which I wrote simply because I wanted to read it and nobody else had written it. Mm-hmm. Was that people read it and it corrupted them? They wanted to do this work. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Mick Napier was a college kid. He reads the book. He says, "I want to go to Chicago and do, the, do this work." So, uh, he opens the Annoyance Theater and ends up directing at Second City. Charna Halper she's told me this. They both told me this. Mm-hmm. Read the book and said, "This is what I want to do." And so, she uh, opened Improv Olympic originally with David Shepard, but that partnership didn't work out well. Mm-hmm. And then she hooked up with Del Close. Improv Olympic turned into IO because the. People who run the Olympics told her that they owned the word Olympic and Mm -hmm. she didn't have high powered lawyers to fight these idiots. Yeah, like the Greeks trademarked the word Uh Olympic, Uh right? Okay. But um, IO, so IO came out of Charner reading something wonderful, and Mm -hmm. then out of IO came, you know, UCB, Mm -hmm. Upright Citizens Brigade, and, you know, they came to New York, and then, you know, it. then you got Magnet and the People's Improv Theater.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So I, in jocular moments, I refer to myself as the illegitimate grandfather, and uh, mutter that nobody calls, nobody writes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> it is. It's. It, it's interesting. The idea for Improv Olympic is right there in the opening descriptive paragraph in David Shepard. It's on page one. Mm. Um, uh, and from what I understand, Mick Napier began improvising having just read your book and seen one second city show and then decided I'll go figure out how to improvise by myself. Yeah. It,
0: it, that's what, that's what he told me, to, yeah. you know, which, which means that I don't have to pay five or $10 to go into the theater. No, you're okay. See, so, anytime
1: yeah. you want, that's great.
0: Yeah. That's I, just just cool. Yeah. I would love that deal. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, yeah, it, it it's, a, it, There's a story I tell in in um, uh, you only shoot the ones you love. About uh, at one point, I was hired to work with Yakov Smirnoff on a solo show. Mm-hmm. Uh, And for some reason, we were working on it in Chicago. And Yakov, at one point, said, Jeffrey, is there anything funny in Chicago? And I said, Yakov. I said, Second City. Second City was like, Yakov, you're in comedy, and you don't know what Second City is? And I start listing all the people who came. All right, Jeffrey, tonight we go to to Second City. I said, Yakov, we can't go there tonight on short notice. They've just opened a new show. It got rave reviews. It's Friday night. We will not get in. And he says... Oh, I'm Yakov Smirnov. We will get in. <laughs> and we go to the uh, to to the line. We're standing on line. And he hasn't bothered to call her head or anything. And there's a the woman standing with the clipboard at the door. And she says, tickets? And he says, well, I have no tickets. And she says, well, sweetheart, we use tickets in this theater. How do you expect to get in? And he says, well, I am... Yakov Smirnov, and she says how nice for you but in this theater we use tickets now maybe you might want to call the business office and they might be able to come Jeff is that you <laughs> yeah oh sweetheart we've got tickets for you we've got seats for you and so we're led to the rail and Yakov turns to me and he says you are more famous than me yeah. and I said Yakov in this zip code <laughs> in this zip <laughs> code <laughs>
1: it uh uh i would take fame in that zip code that, yeah you
0: know, i i i didn't mind it but it was yeah. it was just too perfect too perfect as a story yeah <laughs> you know and yeah it,
1: and it actually happened yeah sometimes life sets you up for the opportunity to create the the best punchline the wittiest thing to say oh it's uh
0: and and i've just had the luck to be at places where where. I've been with people and funny shit has happened. And yeah, I I, I I remember I was standing on line. Ed Asner came to Broadway to do a play called Grace a couple of years ago. And I was going backstage to say hello to him. And I run into Mike Nichols, who, you know, had been Asner's roommate. Mm-hmm. As they told me, you know, they, they said, we were roommates 63 years ago. And I said, oh, I'm 63. And they told me what I could do with that information.
1: <laughs>
0: and... um. um there was some guy in the room who was a surgeon who um, was bloviating big time, who did not recognize Nichols, even though Nichols was sitting next to him and was talking about uh, saying to Asner, uh, Asner was friendly with this guy's wife, and she, so she brings this surgeon along to, to visit backstage. The surgeon's talking about, you know, I'm a surgeon and I supervise 30-some interns. He says, but I don't do medicine on the level of what you were doing on that stage. And Mm -hmm. it's more and more of this oleogenous Mm -hmm. crap. Mm -hmm. And Nichols looks at me. He's sitting on the (laughs) sofa next to this guy who doesn't know who he is. And he looks at me with a look that looks simultaneously, communicates two things simultaneously. One is, my God, I'm sitting next to an asshole. Mm -hmm. And the second version of that is... Isn't he a wonderful example of the platonic ideal of an asshole? <laughs> anyway, this guy finally runs out of stuff to say. <laughs> and he turns to Nichols, whom he doesn't recognize in, you know, in the generic chatty way. says, so what have you been up to lately? Uh-huh. And Nichols says, oh, fuck you. <laughs> and I get a phone call from Nichols the next day saying, do you, do you think, do you think I went too far in doing that? And I said, no, he thought you were joking. And he did that's amazing, you know it's just but I you know I, I just happen to be in in yeah. in, 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 in places where uh, uh, I encounter these uh, these folks or witness some of this stuff yeah and that's part of what what my my show is about within the larger framework of talking about you know the Cossacks and and, and satire and just being in in the room with with a lot of these people and yeah. having, but as I say. Uh, if you know, if you look at the book, if you look at something wonderful right away, six of the people out of the thirty-three people interviewed in the book, six of them died last year, mm-hmm. and it really gives you pause. I mean, my last email with Nichols was my telling him news that Sheldon Patinkin had died, and him mm-hmm. writing back and saying what a you know a, a gentle and forgiving soul Sheldon was, and he said with compass there was much to forgive, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and that was the last email I got from him. So, an awful lot of people, and uh, and, and Gary Goodrow, mm-hmm. people mostly forgot Gary Goodrow, and, and he was a, an important member, brilliant member of the committee, one of the great improvisational um, poets. You know, you'd get up and be able to improvise with uh, in poetry in the style of almost anybody. Mm-hmm. And if you see the film The session with the committee, many of the best pieces are these extraordinary things that uh, that Gary did. And he was a... a Play jazz saxophone in New Bird and uh, was a, a member of uh, the Living Theater. And it's you know wild, ex- crazy career. Never made a dime, mm-hmm. but was a uh, uh, you know taught with uh, at the New Actors Workshop with uh, Nichols and uh, and uh, uh, Paul Sills and some of the others.
1: That's an interesting thing to me, it, it because most of these people didn't reach the heights of somebody like Mike Nichols, um, who, who really had a very unique and amazing career. Yeah. But so many of these people, characters like Gary Goodgrove or, or whatever you read about John Brent, wherever you can find anything about him. Yeah. People who were forgotten largely and, and, and are not household names, even in the world of improv and the world of comedy. Yeah. I'm sure
0: that most people don't know who Roger Bowen. Sure.
1: Yeah. uh, Uh, but they're people who kind of lived in extraordinary times and and traveled in extraordinary circles and you know, spend time with charlie parker or mm. or you know it's it, it it these are people who were when you think of the twentieth century in the counterculture of the twentieth century and and they were right there in the thick of it and kind of yeah. lived amazing lives and 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 being improvisers and being satirists. Were kind of the uh, they're into that life.
0: Yeah, no, it's 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 fascinating to see how how much of the certainly the post-war years they touched and were involved with, uh, even as they were satirizing it. You know, they would you know meet Eleanor Roosevelt or mm-hmm. you know uh, uh, provide uh, comedy to the marchers, uh, the, the freedom uh, writers and stuff. I mean. You know, a lot of big stars went down and did shows for the Freedom Riders. Nichols and May went down. Mike wouldn't let me put anything in the book about that. Mm. He says that's a self-aggrandizing. And uh, you know, there were a lot of people who did it and took no no special bravery to get on a uh, get on a plane and go down and do a couple of shows. We weren't risking anything. Mm-hmm. He says, you know, but um, being very much a part of. Um, being very much a part of their times, not only reflecting it, but being a part of the times. And that's something that's kind of happened recently in a more formal level, I think, with uh, Stuart and Colbert and uh, John Oliver and a lot of these people, which is they are not only commenting on the times, they are more actively shaping and taking Mm -hmm. part of the dialogue. What John Oliver is doing now is something I didn't think you could do. Almost, which is he manages to simultaneously be a satirist and a television activist. Mm -hmm. He has pushed that envelope. I thought that once you actively endorsed or promoted something, you would lose your satiric credibility, and he hasn't. Mm -hmm. You know, he gets people... You know writing letters and 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 uh, sending tweets and emails and God knows what all in outrage you know he's sees there are a lot of people who think that uh, he had uh, a lot to do with the victory of net neutrality mm-hmm. um, and it was, it was Stewart uh, getting pissed off about uh, uh, health plans falling through for the 9/11 uh, first responders and just you know, doing a whole show uh, expressing that outrage. And a lot of people credited that show with getting stuff through uh, shaming Congress into doing the right thing. Mm -hmm. So it's, this is, this is something that's interesting to me, which is um, satire usually comes out because people have standards that are offended so that they're, they're calling people down for uh, behaving badly. If you believe that people have behaved badly, that means you must have some idea of what good behavior is. Mm-hmm. And in fact, the original satirists, satirists were conservatives. Jonathan Swift was a conservative. Mm-hmm. Um, Aristophanes was a conservative. Uh, and they were offended by uh, by what they saw as a moral order being uh, um, um, violated or challenged. And... Uh, Today it's very hard to find anything that looks anybody who calls themselves a conservative satire, who's a, a satirist who's actually funny. Mm-hmm. It's it's interesting that it's all uh, that almost all the satirists are, are now uh, uh, liberals. Yeah, but,
1: though liberals, you have someone like John Stewart or John Oliver. Liberals, yes, but there's a very particular form of sanity that they represent, and and. And, and and they reasonable also, thinking,
0: yeah, and and they also don't uh, don't hesitate to take uh, to take shots at the more conservative end of uh, the Democratic uh, sure. Party, you yeah. know, because they th- think that you know anybody who's bought by Wall Street, this is stuff that you know this is part of what we're we're fighting. God, we're funny today, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but but that was one of the things that was interesting that happened on Saturday Night Live for a way when they lost their way. Mm-hmm when they were doing just let's make fun of anybody who's famous or anybody whose accent we can we can make fun of. Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember Gary Trudeau gave a speech, I think it was at Harvard, saying, you know, comedy is not meant to beat up on the weak. Mm-hmm. You think their accents are funny? Is that really enough to, to make fun of people? Um, and I remember some friends of mine on SNL who were very upset that they were being asked to make fun of people you know, there was one... The, Mary Gross was cast as a, a, a well-known actress who married a much younger man. And the joke was that this woman had married a much younger man. And, you know, she was supposed to be playing this this actress as sort of this doddering person with a boy toy. Mm-hmm. And she was furious because this actress was, in fact, one of her heroes. And mm-hmm. she said, I don't want to do this. Why Why is it that if, you know, guys can you know hang around with younger women, why is it funny if, that this... This woman, who was a pioneer in our field, is going, going to be given shit for for marrying a, a younger guy, and she's just miserable about it. And uh, but SNL, what what um, um, what Gary Trudeau was saying was that SNL had allowed itself to become part of the bullies. Mm-hmm. One of the, you know that uh, they had lost their moral compass. They mm-hmm. had lost what what satire was supposed to be about. It wasn't supposed to be about beating up on the weak and the powerless. It was supposed to be taking on uh, the entrenched bullies it was supposed to be taking on uh, on the powerful well
1: that reminds me of when Craig Ferguson had that amazing monologue in his show where he refused to do any jokes about Britney Spears when she had her her kind of public breakdown oh I did I, I
0: didn't say that but I wouldn't
1: yeah it uh, it was great and 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 a really interesting moment where somebody's being very direct and very sincere and that sincerity it, doesn't seem preachy or make you feel uncomfortable. It it felt like a very sober kind of sincerity. And his point was everybody wants to make jokes. This is when she was shaving her head and and kind Mm. of having some public crisis. And his point was this is a sick person and, and you don't, make jokes at the expense of sick people you make jokes at the expense of people who should be made fun of not not people who well,
0: need you should, help yeah I, the, the thing is that you, what you can make jokes about is uh, is what's supposedly sane the bad the bad conscious choices of supposedly sane people you mm-hmm. don't make fun of people who cannot help what they are doing mm-hmm. or cannot help who they are mm-hmm. It's, it's choices, it's bad choices that are the suitable targets for satire because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how you justify, you know, doing horrible things. And there's no shortage of that. But we we got a very lazy audience that now thinks... Uh, one of the things that drives me nuts about SNL is that it's it's mostly turned into parodies of celebrities. Mm-hmm. Big bloody deal. Who cares? I, you know, who, who, who needs to be told that, you know why does Justin Bieber need to be mocked mm-hmm. who who cares why uh, the people who are taking off of uh, off after Madonna you know uh, why what what purpose is served by mocking these by mocking these people mm-hmm. uh, why are they not going after uh, you know the police department in, in, in Ferguson and their justifications or, or the you know the NRA or the the, the really horrendous people? who can absolutely be the target of uh, of great comedy, or, or, or Scott Walker, mm-hmm. you know, pretending that uh, he's embracing worker freedom when he's destroying workers' mm-hmm. rights and power mm-hmm. and doing the work of, uh, of, you know, the Koch brothers.
1: You know, that's interesting, and it, it makes me want to go back a little bit, you saying... What purpose does it serve to make fun of of this particular celebrity? I
0: mean, basically, what is is this resentment of people who've got who who are have got more money or, or, or prettier, prettier exactly. or, or more talented than us. Exactly. Which is
1: this sort of weird thing with celebrityhood is that there's this mutual building up and breaking down. There's a there's a kind of hero worship as well as a resentment of wanting to see people be publicly there's And there's, a, there's a constant
0: cycle of, you know, we build them up and then we tear them down. I've yeah. certainly seen that with, you know, they did that also to, you know, people like Tennessee Williams sure. and Edward Albee and sure. a, a lot of other folks, Leonard Bernstein, a lot yeah. of these folks. Yeah. Um, Lillian Hellman, uh, but it's uh, it, it's it's a distraction. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I can I can enjoy a, a, a good celebrity impersonation, and that's that's sometimes fun. You know, just as as uh, the Hirschfeld uh, caricatures uh, are, are fun and frequently tell you something about a performer that mm-hmm. in, a, in a loving way that uh, you know is exaggerated. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seems to me that. To satirize celebrity is kind of a waste. Mm -hmm. Uh, If we don't know that commercial culture is largely based on bullshit anyway, then then we're stupid. Mm -hmm. And what the hell? Saturday Night Live is commercial culture. Mm -hmm. It's not outsider humor now. It's now the baseline of American humor. Mm -hmm. When they got started, they were doing stuff that was considered to be sort of edgy and uh they helped change the culture they popularized certain kinds of outrageous stuff uh on american television there are words that you can say that you couldn't say then there are thought, you know ideas that you can you can um, articulate uh you know without being bleeped mm-hmm. but they're not uh an oppositional force force anymore they are they are the dominant uh, comedic uh, voice. You know, how do you stay in a rebel position when you're now on to the King of the Hill? Mm-hmm. And there's some people who are smarter about it than other. I've just seen the first episode of the uh, the new Netflix series that uh, uh, Tina Fey and Robert Carlock wrote, mm-hmm. and I'm going, okay, this is, this is new, this is original. Mm-hmm. There's something really interesting in this. They've come up with a, a pretty original premise. Yeah. And then there are other people who just uh doing, you know, you're back to easy celebrity bashing. Well, it, I
1: want to go back for a second. You had mentioned Roger Bowen as somebody who, who yeah. most people these days aren't familiar if with. If they
0: know him, they remember him as the original Henry Blake mm-hmm. in the film MASH.
1: Which he made a big impression, and he was terrific as Henry Blake.
0: Oh, he was terrific, but it, it was his idea to have Radar speak um, uh, uh, speak a millisecond yeah. after... Uh, after Blake, so that you knew that radar really already knew what the orders were, and yeah. they, on some level radar was running the place, yeah, but that Rogers said, you know me giving you orders is a boring scene why don't you just repeat what i'm saying and and gary berghoff's whole career was based on that one idea of yeah. Rogers he
1: he not only wrote the first scenario play that the compass produced, enterprise enterprise yeah um he your interview with him in in something wonderful right away is uh, A very interesting interview, and he has a lot to say about um, the individual versus society and the way that Compass's perspective on society versus Second City's perspective on society Mm. represented two subtly different worldviews. Yeah. Um, But this sort of goes back for me to this idea of, of a theater that has a point to it and and satire that has a point to it, rather than taking the easy shots or or, or hitting a person when they're down, there's sort of a, a reason behind the comedy that you're Yeah, creating. well,
0: you know, what we have right now is a lot of comedy that's outrageous, but uh, real satire comes because you're outraged. Mm-hmm. You don't start off with saying, "Oh, I'm going to do something outrageous." Okay, what can I glom onto? Mm-hmm. You start off with, you know, this is uh, offensive. This mm-hmm. is this is hypocritical. This is appalling. And out of your sense of outrage, you then create the, create the comedy. Mm-hmm. But there are a lot of people who come in and say, "Oh, what am I going to satirize?" And you end up with them doing, you know, com- parodies of commercials. Mm-hmm. There's something brave. Mm-hmm. Commercials are bullshit. Gee whiz, I really didn't know that. Really. Yeah. Really, people who pay to have their lies told about their product on TV—that's their bullshit. But God, that's a, an interesting concept. Never occurred to me that people would pay to have flattering lies told about their programs, yeah. on, uh, their products on, on TV. You know, so you know, commercial parody—you occasionally see one which is 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 very funny and has a has a serious point, but that's very safe. It's you know, and parodies of TV shows and game shows and talk shows and stuff like that, and largely, I think, fairly safe formats. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, it, it. What you're laughing at is the recognizability of it, and yeah. and you can get a lot of comedy out of what you recognize, but there's it, it, it's sort of playing in the shallows a little bit. Whereas when comedy has a real bite to it. Whether it's specifically satirical, or if you look at like the British Office, I, I I always feel like that's a show that isn't specifically satirical, but it's a show that you take away a pretty broad perspective on life and aging, and 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 mm. and kind of acquiescing to the choices that you made, and, and realizing that you're not going to win at your life, you're going to show up every day and do your job, that it. you have a perspective on on how a person relates to the world around them. Mm. And so the comedy points you to something else. It, it points you to, to kind of real life a little bit. It, it doesn't turn you away from it and become entertainment as a form of distraction. It becomes entertainment as a form of of, of, of I, I don't... Well, it's interesting. I was in London a, a, a
0: I guess in January, mm-hmm. and for reasons too complicated to go into, I ended up spending some time with Jonathan Miller,
1: mm-hmm.
0: who was one of the original four beyond the fringe. For sure, yeah, and uh, I'm doing a book about the history of Yale Rep, and he directed there. But we also got into some other stuff, and you know, it was, it was a great thrill to, to meet him. I mean, you know, at one point I was talking about his, his Shakespeare parody, you know, the famous parody of the history plays mm-hmm. and, the, and the tradition of declamatory British acting. And I, there's one point where he had a speech in there where uh, it's a list of, uh, of, of uh, lords being sent to obscure places. You know, Exeter, Exeter do thee to Wessex, Wessex uh, thou to, uh, uh, you know, Lancashire, Lancashire. You know, there's a long list of just uh, 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 names and places that you can't follow. And at the end of the speech, uh, the character says, I most royally shall now to bed to sleep off all the nonsense I've just said, mm-hmm. which is, you know, one of the great famous lines from me on the Fringe. So I was you know, I I got I was we were talking about this and I said, I most royally shall now to bed. And he's jumped in and said, To sleep off all the nonsense I've just said and it's a little bit like, oh, that's like, you know, singing a couple of lines from, you know, O oh, blah, oh, blah da with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. It was just woo. Anyway, so we were talking <laughs> about uh, about I was talking about the satire boom and he says, Well, you know, we really didn't think that we We're satirists so much. They they commercialized it as the satire boom Mm -hmm. in England. And when we were doing Beyond the Fringe, we just thought that we had been educated in a a post-war world, and we were... Taking a look in as clear-eyed way as possible of what we uh, what was around us, and it came out as being interpreted as satire. Mm-hmm. But we didn't call ourselves satirists. We knew we were doing comedy and that we were making fun of some stuff. But it, you know, that was a that was a label that the uh, the journalists put onto us, and we were you know told that we were part of the satire boom. And then that was the week that was came along, and uh, uh, the uh, Private Eye, Peter Cook's uh, satire mm-hmm. magazine, came along, and a lot of other stuff. And then ultimately, it morphed into the absurdism of uh, Monty Python. But um, he was—I I don't entirely agree with him. I think that there are some people who knew consciously that they were satirists. But mm-hmm. he—but as far as he was concerned. Uh, um, that was a byproduct of what they were doing. That wasn't the target. That wasn't the aim of what they were doing. Mm-hmm. It was a byproduct of, uh, of applying their intelligence to what they saw around them and, uh, and evaluating what they saw around them. It was almost almost journalistic rather than satiric from, 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 from his point of view.
1: Well, that makes me think of what Roger Bowen had to say about... The individual versus society. That at the Compass, there was a little bit more of a worldview of society as a kind of um,
0: big, unthinking machine. And
1: it, well, he was saying with Compass, it was more of like a malevolent force that was trying to reshape you in yeah. its image. Whereas at early Second City, it was more of the alienated machine that you yeah. just kind of like the inhumanity of well,
0: it. Well, and Roger was, you know, had Marxist leanings, and, sure. and he saw he saw. Uh, institutions organized to to accomplish certain things, to try to turn you into what, uh, uh, you know, to to either assimilate you or beat you down Mm -hmm. if you refuse to be assimilated. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he he saw a more conscious force, whereas at Second City... Uh, and this is gross generalization mm-hmm. and it's the difference between David Shepard being a producer and, pro- mm-hmm. and pushing this pushing his view and Paul Sills being you know one of the producers and the, you know the key director and, and promoting his view mm-hmm. um, but from Sills's point of view was that uh, this kind of oppression was going on without even much thought there mm-hmm. was just a kind of Momentum to this, and the the mass society just created alienation as a natural byproduct. Nobody was even particularly intending to do this. It's just something that we had drifted into, mm-hmm. and we were living inauthentic lives. And uh, you know, and then he went from there to talking about Martin Buber and mm-hmm. how to make real connection and so forth. There, there's a relationship between the two perspectives, but they are slightly different perspectives.
1: Yeah, but it it the the point is that these guys are so aware of that perspective or at least Bowen is. Yeah. And, and you see it, I mean, the way that we're talking about it makes it sound as if all of these scenes were specifically about engaging politically. But if you listen to Nichols and May, Mm. there's no overt political reference necessarily, but the same idea is in play of, of inauthentic lives and, and what's under the surface between people, even though their focus is much more intimate and much more relationship based. Yeah. It, very clearly comes from a sensibility about how we fit into the world and how the world shapes us and how we... we
0: How we seek approval from each other by by using certain cultural flashcards. Sure. You know, I know who Bar Talk is. Sure. Okay, that means that uh, you'll go to bed with me. Yeah. You know, uh, always works for me.
1: That... Uh, <laughs> well, that one scene, I think it's it, Bach to Bach. Bach to Bach, yeah. It, that's one of the... Oh, great scenes of all
0: time. It's a great scene, you know, but it, also the, the talk show, you know, sweetheart, the Pope tells me you're about to do a new movie. Oh, he never could keep a secret. Uh-huh. You know, <laughs> it's, you know, it's, um, um, there's an awful lot of, uh, it's not overt political satire. The closest thing that they came to in taking on a powerful uh, industry or force was when they did a satire on um, um, the funeral business. Mm-hmm. And, uh, after it was on TV, the funeral industry howled with outrage, saying this was, you know, you know, a scandal and an outrage, and they didn't actually practice these predatory policies. Mm-hmm. Do you know the, do you know the, the funeral sketch? No, I don't think. Do. Oh, God, is it funny? Yeah. Uh, Nichols comes in, and Elaine May is, uh, 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 you know, behind the desk, and he says, I, uh, I, I want your, I don't know what the actual figure is. I'm, I'm, I'm here about the $24 funeral. Uh, I'd like to have that, and and, and she says, uh, uh, "Where where did you catch our ad? A TV Guide." Oh, okay. Mm. He says, "Well, um, okay, twenty four dollars." Here you here you are, and she says, "Would you be interested in some extras? Extras like, well, how about a coffin? It doesn't come with. No, no, it doesn't come with. Well, what are my options? Well, you have three options. You have mahogany, oak, or you know, for fifteen ninety nine, nubby plywood. Mm. Nubby plywood. What kind of impression does that make? cheap I'll, I'll go for the oak i'll go for the <laughs> you know? and it's you know you know and music you have to you have to have, you have to have music you know yeah. for two thousand dollars we fly you in e-power bigs and he plays Bach for you and just curious what's the 79.9 one um little sally mertz down the down the way uh, who's been taking piano for a few months plays the organ and you know can play Buffalo Gals <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. But the the whole the whole the whole thing was you know how uh, preying on people's uh, distress uh, at, at at you know at a death in the family. How mm-hmm. these people um, and it's not on any of the records, but there's a chunk of it I guess on the um, uh, American Masters did a, 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 a an hour saluting Nichols and May. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it's on YouTube or not. You Used to be able to. Uh, Get it on uh, on a VHS, mm-hmm. and uh, the funeral sketch was howls of outrage. Very, 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 very funny. Yeah, but, but indeed, the funeral industry. There were headlines the next day. The funeral industry furious and wanting an apology from the network and from Nicholson May for having maligned their their industry.
1: And that's perfect satire for you, right there. Yeah, it. it, it, it along, I mean. Even just like the funeral industry, it, it, and I I mean, you, you, it it is a business that has to be run as a business, but that's very, that's a very pointed thing that, you know, we, we have certain cultural and moral pretensions that, that we aspire towards and that we even believe in. But then there's the day to day facts and realities of life that you Mm. have to talk price down and, and finding that sort of discrepancy is there a way to, it's not exactly a political point of view, but it's a social point of view, and it has a point about and it and it
0: you know on some level you know it's not something that you know would make Marx tap dance, but it talks about the com, the commercialization and commoditization of, uh, of, 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 of 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 society where pain is turned into uh, an advantage, a, a way to take advantage of people and pick their
1: pockets. Yeah, um, which is the element that we swim in. We we are a a, a capitalist. Uh, Democracy, mm-hmm. um, and you know, you do, you don't see the element that you swim in necessarily. It's invisible. No, to do, you. Do, do
0: you know the story by uh, uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne uh, daughter? No. Oh God, is it a great story? It's this uh, this student who is in Italy, and he's living in a an apartment complex that's built around a, a, an inner court, and the inner court is this garden. Uh, which is tended to by a man named Rappaccini and he uh, grows poisonous plants plants that exude, you know, toxins in the air, poisonous fumes. Mm-hmm. And there's this beautiful girl down there and the student falls in love with Rappaccini's daughter who has grown up in this toxic atmosphere and he falls in love with her. They decide to elope and uh, he's taking her from the garden and the clean air kills her. Mm-hmm. She's grown up with such poisons mm-hmm. that she doesn't realize that they're poisons, and that, and that and that she's that they're that's what she flourishes in. So the idea that clean air would kill you is yeah. metaphor. You know, it's a yeah. great it's a great story idea. Yeah. I mean, it's there's no deep characterization there. It's just the irony that that if you're brought up in a certain world and take things for granted, uh, you know, being taken out of that world will give you the equivalent of the bends.
1: Right. Well, and that's part of it. That makes me think of. John Oliver a little bit of, of serving a function of pointing and saying there's poison in the air. Yeah. Breathing in poison. It's calling attention. Partly it's calling attention to the kind of invisible element that we're swimming in that we don't notice. Mm -hmm. And, and the flip side to that is it's an emperor's new clothes kind of thing where you're calling attention to this agreed upon lie that, we're not acknowledging the evidence of our own senses that we can't
0: I, clearly see one of the things which I find is hysterical is of course John Oliver is doing this extraordinary work on uh, uh, you know at the behest of a of a of a, of a one of the big corporations <laughs> yeah <laughs> you know that's 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 part of that makes money off of the very practices that he's uh, attacking yeah you know it's uh, and 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 they're probably uh, uh, just nodding and smiling and saying he's getting good ratings, he's getting good reviews, and uh, oh, he's no threat to us. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know the degree to which individuals separate themselves from the corporation, you have people of real conscience who are in almost any corporation, and they put their consciences aside. When they uh, when they
1: have to serve uh, the corporate uh, uh, mindset, that seems a little bit like a Paul Sills idea to me. That that there's a malice, but it's not a conscious, deliberate malice. It's the sort of the machinery operates, and and people can individually make certain compromises.
0: Well, I, I, I'd say it would relate to a shepherd too, because they you know they 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 frame the corporate rules. Yeah. And and those rules are filled with malevolent stuff about yeah. ev- evading responsibility and how, uh, you know, corporations can do these horrible things, but you can't send a corporation to jail. So these people who've made the decisions that, you know, desolated our economy in 2008 and saw two uh, people uh, having their pension funds wiped out and being thrown out of their houses and working hard all their lives, uh, all of a sudden destitute. Mm-hmm. And uh, none of the people, or very few of the people who made the decisions that resulted in mass suffering, have ever personally been called to account. Mm-hmm. You know, the corporations are fined some pitiful sum. Uh, you know, what Christie just settled, some ludicrous sum uh, with a corporation in, in New Jersey. You know, a small fraction of what do the, that corporation owes for doing great damage to the environment. Mm-hmm. Just, you know. But, uh, yeah, lawyers consciously put that language in there. And, you know, Citizens United certainly was something that uh, has been defended by villains. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, eh. <laughs> there's another that, that almost was a joke, wasn't it? It was me. almost a laugh. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It was a half a laugh.
0: Anyway, there we are. God, yeah, you know, here we are talking about... I think I, I, we, we cracked up once so far.
1: That's okay. I I wouldn't trust a conversation where we were cracking up the entire time. Well, probably wouldn't be much of interest to listen to. Uh, well, I, ho- I hope that this is of some interest. I, I'm actually, you know, like a
0: good joke, God damn it. I, <laughs> you know, I'll try good, to, but that's the reason why I wanted to, uh, I wanted to write the book was yeah. because they cracked me up. Yeah. You know, I, w- I would go to Second City, or I'd see Nichols and May on on Jack Parr or, be- or Beyond the Fringe. You know, I mean, I, uh, at one point for I could know, don't know why, but I, uh, the Times did uh, a piece on who was inspired by whom, and for some reason um, uh, they put me in the column. You know, who who were you inspired by? And I said I was inspired by seeing Nichols and May and Beyond the Fringe. On Jack Parr, and I got an email from Nichols saying, "You know, Elaine and I are really touched that you said that. Mm-hmm. And It meant a lot to me. But, but a lot of it was they were, you know, I was an adolescent, and they were taking off on the stuff that I thought was hypocritical and unfair, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the, a lot of society's bullshit. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and it was funny. It was
0: they were mocking, you know, the grown-ups.
1: Well, that's also, yeah, there, there's certainly that." that element of like standing up to, to the older generation and making fun of the people in, in power. But there's also like, it, it's a very like lawyeres or corporate uh, thing to take important issues and make them sound so serious and so boring that you're inclined to not want to think about them. And mm-hmm. And part of what's so great about satire is that you can tackle things that are important in a way that, draws your attention to them and yeah. makes you because comedy makes your brain work better and it makes you feel better. Even when you're facing an ugly truth and something that ultimately is, is a real problem, mm-hmm. um, uh, or, or even worse than a real problem, you kind of face it. Uh, maybe courage is too strong a word, but you face it with eyes open.
0: Well, but there's something interesting you just said there about uh, courage. Uh, you know, there's some people who say, "Okay, satire. What's what is satire good for?" And was it uh, Tony Holland used to have this bit about you know, wasn't satire great in in uh, in Germany and see how effective it was against the Nazis? Mm-hmm. You know. When you know when it, when I'm tired and there isn't enough food in the in the cupboard, you know I I, I can turn on my favorite satiric show and say thank God there's political satire. Mm-hmm. You know. On the other hand, one of the things that was interesting to me I can't remember whether it was I was talking to Roger Bonar or I was talking to Andrew Duncan. It's been a little while since I've read the book. Uh, but if you were sitting in an audience watching people who are making fun of these bastards and a lot of other people are laughing too it you think oh i'm not alone right it's not just it's not like the bastards are going to hear you make fun of them and go oh we've been caught out we're hypocrites we're going to change our ways right it's that it's encouraging to a bunch of people oh other people feel the same way i do and it gives them heart and it gives them the courage to keep going right
1: it's so, the emperor's new clothes idea other people see this too Yeah. I, I, as long as you're the only one who thinks you see it you keep it to yourself but I, when it's called out and other people agree it gives you a voice
0: and that comedy had an awful lot to do with what was going on in the 60s yeah uh, it was it was the skepticism that uh, that uh, was the fuel for the sixties. Yeah, because uh, you know until the there were inklings of it in the mid fifties, which is when Lenny Bruce, Mortzall, you know, and Nichols May started uh, coming up, and 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 Jules Pfeiffer. But it really took hold and hit the dominant culture in the sixties, mm-hmm. and an awful lot of what the sixties was about was about. Um, The uh, corruption of established Mm institutions—these things to which we automatically deferred, like government, and the church, the Mm -hmm. army, the big corporations, the big banks, uh, the uh, big—you know—all—all these places that we were trust us. They said, Mm -hmm. and it turned out. that there was an awful lot of uh, uh, corruption there and they should be met with skepticism. It's one of the things, it's, it's why it happened in England too. Mm-hmm. In England, the Suez crisis uh, triggered an enormous wave of, of doubt, much as uh, uh, the U2 incident uh, here Uh, you know, you know, Gary Powers and the U2 incident, the Gary. Oh, Gary Powers uh, was an an American uh, pilot who was uh, flying spy missions over, over Russia. And he was in a a plane, uh, I guess it was the plane was a called the U2 or whatever it was. And it was shot down. Mm -hmm. And uh, Eisenhower said, we don't, we don't, we don't, do this. And then the Russians paraded Gary Powers, who was indeed still alive, and the wreckage of the plane. And Eisenhower had to come on TV and admit that he had lied. Mm-hmm. He had lied to us when he said that we didn't do these things. We indeed did, did, did do those things. And the idea that Eisenhower, who had a reputation for, you know, and a not unearned one, you know, this is a fairly remarkable man. Uh, but that he had lied to us mm-hmm. that the president would lie to us it, uh, it was a tremendous blow to the psychic state of this uh, this country the idea that uh, the president would have to go on television and admit that he had looked into the camera and told us something that he knew wasn't true mm-hmm. and so between that here and the Suez crisis there it was it shook a, it shook a lot of people up a lot of people up
1: I want to pick your brain about one more thing. Oh sure. It, it, it um because it, it seems to me like there was that breaking point in the 60s where where the counterculture began to to come together a little bit more and part of that I think is people finding other people who share your sensibility and yeah. realizing that you're not alone. Yeah. It You had mentioned earlier when you were talking about the committee that they sort of put the voice of the street on the stage. Yeah. Um, uh, and you find that now there's the head culture that you're not, it's not a shameful private thing that you do alone. It's something that we can sort of put out in the open and, and talk about. This is what our lives are like. Yeah. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on on. Improvisational theater and, and kind of folk art, because I had heard you talk in the past about the relationship, uh, uh, improv is a kind of folk theater.
0: Well, that's, that's something I kind of stumbled across. There's um, a guy named, I can't remember if it's Richard M. Dorson or Richard K. Dorson. Mm-hmm. you know. He, he wrote a book called America and Legend, which was about the four different uh, eras of uh, American folktale. mm mm-hmm. And uh, the first era was dominated by religious imagery, like you know witches. And the second era was uh, pioneers, like you know Daniel Boone and Davy Crockett. And the third era had, uh, I think, industrial images like um, um, Casey Jones uh, and Paul Bunyan. Although Paul Bunyan was the invention of an advertising agency, that wasn't mm-hmm. real folk. It wasn't really a folktale. Mm-hmm. They foisted it onto us, and people now think it's a folktale, but mm-hmm. it was an advertising agency creation. But Dorsen was saying that, uh, he, uh, he was writing this in the 60s, and he was saying there's the beginning of a fourth wave of, um, of um, a folktale. And uh, it's about um, great drug deals and people figuring out ways to get out of the draft. And so, you know, is this? he was talking about, you know, the sort of legends and stories of the counterculture. And I wrote to him. And I said it's interesting you should say this right across he was writing in Berkeley I think he says right across the bay from you in San Francisco is the committee and the committee all these patterns that you're talking about in your book of this fourth wave of the American folktale uh, th- these stories are being acted out on the stage by the committee and I don't you know I don't think that they were conscious of themselves as being you know folk artists and he wrote back he says it's funny you should say this my wife was saying the same thing I guess I have to go to see the committee hmm. uh so it was a it was a folk tradition, almost a, a folk voice. They I don't think they particularly conceived of it as such, right. um, but they were in the middle of a culture that they were that they were reflecting. But you know, let's not over idealize this. Uh, whenever you have any group, uh, abuses kick in, and there were an awful lot of these people who you know, as they postured about, you know, a higher, less hypocritical moral standard brought in their own hypocrisy, Mm -hmm. you know, and there were a lot of um, uh, uh, people who bullied each other sexually saying, well, if you don't sleep with me, that means that you're uptight and Mm -hmm. that you're, you know, you're going against your organic nature. So, you know, uh, a lot of sexual exploitation of people who weren't, Who were, you know, succumbed to that kind of bullying. Right. There's
1: something very predatory about that kind of nineteen sixties free yeah, if you if you, if you if you if
0: you don't if you don't smoke dope and if you don't shoot up or something like this then you're not uh it's a, a an interesting thing happened I talk about you, you know like basic freudian thing, the ego the id the superego and mm-hmm. all that sort of thing. Well, my theory is that in the 60s we hit a peculiar time when a certain kind of superego matched up with the id, mm-hmm. which is the superego is all about guilt and you should and shouldn't and social pressure and all the rest of the stuff. And the social pressure among certain classes of people in the '60s was you should listen to the id because they're your authentic self, uh-huh. so the superego bullied you into, which is supposed to be an oppositional force mm-hmm. to the id, mm-hmm. in fact, bullied a lot of people into you know acting on their instincts and impulses and you know uh, doing what felt good in the gut, yeah. And an awful lot of this was destructive uh, drug behavior, yeah. uh, uh, social behavior, sexual behavior, so forth and so on. You know, a lot of people getting STDs and um, uh, a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, overdosing. And, uh, um, you know, the wreckage of the 60s is considerable. Mm-hmm. There were most of the people managed to get back on the on-ramp, mm-hmm. particularly the people who came from middle-class homes and families where the the parents, you know, as disgusted as they were, they were going to help their kids back into mainstream society. The poor kids who went into that were beached. Mm-hmm. A friend of mine once said these were the people who were, you know, without teeth, who were uh, uh, pumping gas in back roads. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the poor people who dropped out when they had an opportunity to get in— you know, to go to college, but they succumb to the idea of, oh, college just fills you with society's bullshit and, you know, and you're, 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 you're inculcated with this crap and, you know, to be part of that is to become part of the machine and so forth and so on. So don't become complicit with that dropout. But what happened to these people? They were lost. Mm-hmm. I saw it when I was down in uh, Key West because an awful lot of these people went down to Key West in the 60s at a time when with one part-time job, you could rent a studio and you know, you'd work a couple hours a week and you'd have enough money to, you know, for dope and, you know, to get laid and uh, have a pretty decent time. Except it got more and more expensive to be in Key West and by the, you know, after a couple decades, these people couldn't hold on anymore. And they were the homeless without teeth, you know, strung out and uh, uh, no brains left. Mm-hmm. You know, is like these were the, the victims of uh, the people who'd, and they were terrified to leave the island because they'd never gotten off they'd never left Key Wested for, for for decades. Yeah. So, uh, you know, that's the image of. There's a lot of great stuff that came out of the 60s and a lot of major changes that came out of the 60s. Some of the people were thinking yeah. and knew what they were doing, and some of the people just said, "Oh, if I go with the gang, I get free dope and I get laid." Right. Well,
1: there's a couple of things I think about as you're talking and one is that the kind of promise of of a more promiscuous lifestyle and 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 a very open culture and free drug use mm-hmm. is sort of like a um the promise of a shortcut to easy freedoms and it it always ends up uh, yeah, it's being it, being synthetic. It, 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 shortcuts usually there's a
0: usually you're being shortchanged. Yeah. It's a, it's somewhere on the line. Yeah,
1: but, it 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 a, a kind of a, a more open and more free life, yeah. and a life where you're free from restrictions that are that are maybe um repressive to your nature not helpful that's a life of dedicated work and focus and intelligence and and it's a lifelong process to kind of figure out how to be more free and more more authentic
0: well, well there's a there's a guy and i'm blanking on his name now um uh, something berlin isaiah berlin hmm and he talked about uh, there are two different kinds of freedoms. There's the, fr- and I'm no expert on this stuff. I've just, the freedom from and the freedom to. Right. And there's a positive and negative freedom. And freedom from is, you know, represents, you know, being free from the power of institutions and being free from the, you know, the things that would repress you. And the freedom to are the are the opportunities to do something. Mm-hmm. So one is running from something and the other is running to something. Mm-hmm. And um a lot of the sixties was running from something.
1: Yeah. Which is interesting because as soon as you become free from something, without knowing where you're heading to, you will immediately and instinctively attach to something else. But that's the end of the gra-
0: the graduate. Yeah. At the end of the graduate, they have run from their pasts. Mm-hmm. They've run from their you know, their materialistic parents, they've run from Mrs. Robinson, they've run from you know, the college that she was going from. And now, Frank, That now they're sitting on the bus. Mm-hmm. And they're exhilarated because they've escaped, they've got freedom from. And then all of a sudden, sitting on the bus, they realize they haven't the slightest fucking idea where they're going. Mm-hmm. Which was something that Mike Nichols was smart enough to set up in that shot. You know, he didn't tell them that he was going to keep the camera on them. It's good directing. He said, you know, just get on the, on the bus and, you know, you, you've escaped and just let's see what happens. Yeah. And what he did was he kept the camera on for a very, very, very long time. And uh, the two of them looked at each other and, you know, laughing. And, ah, we got away and this and that. And, you know, this woman in her wedding dress sitting in the back of the bunch bus with this guy. And he kept the camera going on for a very, very long time. And it was a situation where the actors and the characters were in exactly the same position. Mm-hmm. And that's why that ending has is disturbing and has resonance. Mm-hmm. Is they've got they managed to get the freedom from, and now they have no idea where they're running to, Mm -hmm. you know, and it's it's not enough to be free from something. You have to have some sense of where you think you're going, what you're going to do with this freedom, Mm -hmm. and a lot of people didn't spend much time thinking that in in the 60s. Although there were a lot of people who did indeed try to build things like communes, and most of those communes fell apart and turned out to be nightmares of their own you yeah. know because inevitably when you have any group of people somebody's going to seize power even if they think you know there's an egalitarian thing going somebody's going to seize power and is going to run things and is going to be the bully
1: yeah which takes us right back to the beginning of the story again it it and to kind of like wrap it up and 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 find a commonality of these themes i'm very interested in the freedom that 's associated with getting to improvise and getting to create a theater and getting to put your life on the stage and the life of your tribe and your people mm-hmm. um, um, and f- in that state of of free play or more or less free play it, it goes right back to those early spolen roots of finding that common ground where we find our our connection to you each know. other in that in that play. Uh, Um, but right back to in that freedom is also a little bit of a responsibility to like fight against the Cossack fight against that, that oppressive. There's always going to be someone who's looking to claim power with every new counterculture that rises. There's going to be some personality that's going to determine for you that you're not free enough. You're not loose enough. Take off your shirt, baby. Yeah. Uh, Um, and it's the rise of a new kind of Cossack all over again, and so it's this this interesting. I don't know what the right word is to describe what I'm meaning to say, but this kind of like fluid cycle of of uh, um, trying to discover what we what we want to make ourselves free to be, rather than rather than what we're freeing ourselves from. Yeah. But in that process of discovering what we want to be free to be, keeping that eye on on using a good sense of humor to not forget that it, it, the sort of like larger social monster is always uh, uh, returning to put new restrictions on it.
0: You you know who you're putting me in mind of, and it's it's an interesting journey and somewhere along the line, I'm sure there'll be a fascinating biography about him, but I mean, looking at what's happened with Al Franken Hmm. who started off as, you know, a fair amount of outrageous comedy and now is a very sober senator. Yeah, And uh, people have long since stopped trying to tar Franken with, oh, well, this is a joke. Mm -hmm. You know, he's turned into quite a sober senator and one of the more respected people in the Senate. But he managed to go from the freedom from and let's make fun of stuff to uh, getting some serious political power Mm -hmm. and to pursue with remarkably little compromise from what I've seen, the things that he values, what mm-hmm. he believes in. And uh there ain't a lot of people who've done that. Uh mind you he's not all that funny anymore, but he's not supposed to be. Right. But uh but it's interesting to go from a guy who did, you know, fairly outrageous comedy and starred in movies mocking things to trying to be a, a constructive force and largely being one and yeah. being, being one of the people I look to the Senate, uh, with hope. I mean, he and Elizabeth Warren and uh, Bernie Sanders are the, the people that I'm, you know, if there's hope in, in the left, it's in these anti-corporate, uh, uh, uh liberals. Yeah. So, uh, it's interesting. I think he's one of those odd people who's actually made the journey, has made or is making the journey. Yeah, And uh, I'm, uh, he he gives me some hope. I'm not saying that I'd want to see him as president. I don't think he, that's what he's, his constitution is, just as I don't think Elizabeth Warren is presidential material. I think being in the Senate is exactly where she should be. And mm-hmm. They should both be there, you know. For a very long time, doing what you can do from the Senate floor that you can't do as a president, but still, they're very. uh, It's interesting to look at Franken and to see that he's made this journey from sort of a post-sixties sensibility uh, to becoming a member of a kind of political establishment. But I don't see. I don't see that he's compromised much. Mm I look at the things that he's come out for and the fi- the fights that he's fighting, and um, he seems to me to be still a voice of idealism married with pragmatism. But he still seems to me to be uh, fighting a very good fight. So it's it's interesting that we have that figure. It's interesting that uh, they were floating that idea of trying to get John Stewart to take over Meet the Press. Mm-hmm. Um. It's interesting the public life that Colbert has allowed himself to have, mm-hmm. to stand up in uh, in uh, you know, a congressional committee, first playing a character and then speaking very seriously on behalf of uh, you know unionization. Um, I don't think we ever quite expected that to happen in the '60s, in the '50s, with the with the satirists. That that somehow the idea was we were going to stay apart from everybody and Mm -hmm. and make fun of everybody and that we would lose credibility or power if we, you know, became part of that, uh, uh, you know, got elected to the Senate or Mm -hmm. or pursued any of that stuff. And Oliver is making me reconsider that considerably, that he is able to still be very, very, very funny, and yet he offers frequently specific social actions mm-hmm. which people are taking mm-hmm. and are having an impact. Uh and I'm kind of surprised that it's gone that way.
1: Yeah. It's a good kind of surprise. It it's, is. It's it, good to see the smart people winning sometimes.
0: No, it is. It's it's encouraging and it, it knocks down the cynicism that it's too easy to be cynical. It's too easy to say, well, you can't change anything, so let's live behind a, a gated community and uh, build up our um, our retirement account and uh, you know, write it, write the occasional check. But that's, there's a lot of disorder out there, and how can I protect myself from the disorder? How can I lead a protected life because I can't change the world? And there's an awful lot of people who think that way. Yeah, you know, I can't really change anything, so okay, I'll do something that's the occasional salve to my conscience, but uh, you know. Old age is coming, and how do I protect myself? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of people who understandably think that way, but Oliver reminds you, you and Al Franken reminds you, and Elizabeth Warren reminds you. Of course, she had a great career as a political satirist before she...
1: Uh, <laughs> if you've read her book, it's very funny.
0: Uh, uh, I, I haven't read her book. but It's, I it's to, not very funny, but it's a, a good book. Uh, yeah, no. It's, 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 it's well it's, worth a read. But it's... Uh, it's, 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 I think it is a new development. Yeah. What passed as political comedy for a long time was fairly toothless. Will you know, Will Rogers saying I'm from no organized political party. I'm a Democrat. That was about as funny as it got. Yeah. It's a pretty good joke. Yeah. That's about as funny as it got. Although, you know, if you go back and look at some of Mark Twain's old stuff, it was kind of a ferocious political commentary in some of the comedy. uh, Very edgy for its time. Mm-hmm um but uh, that has not been anything like the dominant tradition in the in, in, in this country um so i'm what it all adds up to is that there's something good to watch on TV. I don't know. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Jeffrey Sweet, uh, this has been a real pleasure. This has been oh, a fascinating a, 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 conversation. A, a, a Thank ple- you so much for being time. Uh, um, really quick before we go, uh, mm. I understand that there is a new edition of something wonderful right away in the works. Is that correct? Oh,
0: in the works is uh, is is a very vague way of putting it. Uh, I have got the rights back because I couldn't get the uh, I couldn't get my publisher to issue a new edition where I could do some updates and uh, and add a couple of things. Here's one thing that happened is that a couple a couple years ago, I wrote a, an article for a magazine called Dramatics about Viola Spolin, and there was a picture of Viola on the cover of the magazine, and uh, uh, Spolin's estate said, we're really happy about this magazine. We understand that Viola never lets you put the interview with her into something wonderful. We're so happy with this article that when you put out the next edition, you can use the chapter. That's exciting. so And it's a good chapter. Yeah. Uh, so that's but uh, my publisher at the time did not want to uh go to the expense of doing it. Mm. so I got the rights back and i've got to I'm gonna reformat it myself and eventually release it as an ebook great uh unless I can find a, a publisher that will step up to the plate and do it. but it seems to me that uh there's a lot of stuff that's happened since the last edition of the book. And not just the fact that so many people have died.
1: Yeah.
0: You know, so yeah, it'll come eventually, but first I have to finish writing two more books.
1: Uh, you're writing one now on
0: Yale repertory history of Yale repertory. And another is a book of interviews with, uh, American and British playwrights, which I'm, uh, uh doing for the horn foundation. And, uh, um, I, they both do in November. Uh, so I, I'm not writing plays. I'm not doing anything else except, uh, working on the, on the, this book and, and these books and you know doing interviews and uh, so this has been kind of interesting because i'm usually
1: on the other side of the microphone well thanks so much for doing it oh it's a pleasure and good luck with the books please check them out uh, on amazon when they come out Purchase them, Jeffrey Sweet. Thanks so much, everybody. Uh, this has been the Magnet Theater Podcast. The Magnet Theater Podcast is produced by Evan Ford Barden and engineered by Grant Michael Goldberg, with executive producer Ed Herbstman and recorded at the Magnet Training Center in New York City. We can be found on SoundCloud and iTunes. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please head over to iTunes and give us a positive rating. We appreciate the support. Thanks so much, gang. Bye. You've been listening to the Magnet Podcast. This podcast has been brought to you by the Magnet Training Center, where we teach classes in improvisation, sketch writing, musical improv, storytelling, and more. If you're interested in checking us out, we offer free weekly intro to improv classes. You can find out more about those free intro classes and all other classes we offer at magnettheater.com. Also, be sure to check out the Magnet Theater for top-notch comedy shows seven nights a week. All information regarding classes and shows can be found at magnettheater.com.